Hello, my name is John Lovering and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. First on the docket are Larry and Leona Hosack, a happily married couple from Elliott, Maine, who've been performing together as singer-songwriters for over 35 years. Larry will tell the story from then to now and back again. Then Leona will sing an original song that she wrote for her husband titled, The Sweetest Way. Larry and Leona? Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a, a first for me, actually. I, I'm mostly with a guitar and keyboard and singing various songs for families or children or used to work for senior citizens. But um, just to have folks listening to a story and several stories that I might tell is kind of a, a real uh, enjoyment for me. And I made a few notes here. It's notebooks fairly th- well, I'll just I'll start with the first page. Things I'm about to say are almost true. The things that aren't true are also mostly true. See, you follow that. I get that. Now, usually they call me to the microphone with my guitar to clear the room at the end of the program. You know, everybody kind of waddles out. You know, they, oh, Larry's playing. They all, you know. But tonight I'm first, so I uh, kind of stuck here with the. A new position. Actually, I'm standing up rather than sitting down, so that's my position on that. (laughs) Now, I wrote just a little thing here about love, because this is about uh, love, romance, Valentine's Day, and all related things. Okay. I love music, and I love my life. I love my children, and I love my wife. That's the extent of my poetry tonight. Thank you very much. And I usually write these long, senseless poems uh, in about five minutes before the program. And tonight I was trying to do that, but there's so many potholes in the area, I couldn't write anything down on the way here. And my wife and I were having a little time, trouble finding the place, you see, and we were in perfect harmony, weren't we, trying to you know, pick the right turn in the right place. And um, I just was a saint through the whole thing, as you can imagine. But uh, Leon and I have played music, like uh, Pat said, for over 35 years. Uh, we played music at our own wedding. We set up a, a PA system. We had a drummer and a, um, a fiddle player, and we, we played folk songs. And it was kind of kind of interesting. I think people would rather have more cake and food than they would listen to us sing. But it was a nice way to start our uh, our marriage. And we 
we proceeded in my little white Volkswagen, back in the, with the old Volkswagens, not these new sleek ones, to uh, uh, go to Maine. We wanted to go to Maine. We lived in Connecticut. And we thought it would be really cool to go camping somewhere in Maine and stop at a beautiful place we visit all the time called the Green Acre Baha'i School in Elliott. And uh, on the way there, we got some gas actually down in the center of Elliott. Have any of you been to downtown Elliott recently? Yeah. <laughs> if you blink, you miss it. So it's, But the people are very nice. And we got to the gas station after driving from Connecticut with one night stopover. And uh, the people at our wedding had put notes in the gas tank area when you flipped open the cover. And it said something like, be nice to these people. They were just married. And the guy who was pumping gas just didn't get it. He walks around. He says, there's some kind of note for you folks here. And <laughs> anyway, that was um, And we ended up staying for three days at Greenacre in, uh, with some wonderful people that we've been friends with ever since. And... Uh, it was just a delightful time there. And during that stay, we uh, they used to have in the Greenacre programs, which were a week long, a day of recreation where you went to a park. And anybody who knows South Berwick knows that there's a park there named Spring Hill, which is a private uh, sort of catered place for weddings, uh, parties, anniversaries. And we went there in 1978, right after our wedding. And... Uh, and that you have to hold on to that thought for just a minute, because I'm going to weave the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. And my wife said, "Please weave me alone." <laughs> so, and that was on the way here. You know, we had that conversation. Um, it was like when I was on a boat; I had that sinking feeling. But um, and another, this is sort of a, a we aren't supposed to talk about other people, but 1992. When we finally moved to Maine, we'd been up here a few years, Leona's parents went out on an anniversary cruise on what was then, some of you, most of you probably remember, the Scotia Prince. And they were headed for Nova Scotia, and it was on uh, about August 19th, 1992. Anybody remember the storm that year? Hurricane Bob. Bob. That was a... And they were out there in the water because the boat couldn't go into port with all that wind. And mm-hmm. and the dishes were flying. The furniture was flying across the deck. And, and uh, you know, they were like, what, in their, almost in their 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, you know, everybody's lived. They didn't, you know, they survived. But it wasn't very pleasant. And that was the last time Leona's parents ever went on a boat. <laughs> but some some of my anniversary trips work out that way, you know. It's... Um, Reminds me of the wedding Leon and I played at in uh, Kenny Bunkport. Mm-hmm. It was a tavern on the marsh, I think it was called, oh. on Route 9. Yes. And we played in the back, and there was a nice, beautiful wedding set up there outdoors, nice summer's evening. And uh, I had a keyboard with a little amplifier, and Leon had a guitar and a couple of mics. And the fellow who was also doing music from the church itself was singing Ave Maria. You all know that one. Ave Maria. Sorry. That's... <laughs> that was terrible. Anyway, we practiced, and it was great. He was a tenor. And, and then Leona and I, during the wedding, played our song. Well, on these electric keyboards, you can push a couple of buttons and jack up the tone about four steps if you want to, which I did for our song. 
And so we sang this wonderful love song. I forget what it was. Maybe uh, Longer Than by uh, Dan Fogberg. And I forgot to put the pitch back down again. So I got to Ave Maria. Oh. <laughs> this tenor's like, ah. He had no idea how, how the notes got so high. He thought maybe he'd had a breakdown or something, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, so after the wedding, I said to Leona, should I, should I tell them, tell, tell the poor guy what happened? You know, I, anyway, I did. And he was so relieved because he saw th- th- something had happened to his uh, voice, you know. And... Um, <laughs> This is what that beautiful lady said on the pro- beginning of the program about um, finding humor. And um, so anyway, full circle is a, sort of the theme here. About 1987, we lived in Connecticut till then. We've been married about 10 years. And we moved to Maine. And we lived out on a road, people in the area know, uh, Emery's Bridge Road. It's like a, a folk tale in itself, the... The Hasty family lived out there 200 years ago, and there was dwellings and you know, a lot of history out there. And um, we moved into a little uh, duplex, brand new, very nice. The landlady, landlords, told us all these promises of uh, Japanese gardens and all this never happened. It was a dirt lot for the two years we were there. <laughs> and, you know, winter in Maine can be a little long and dull and, you know, gray and and uh, we've had a bit of that this winter, as some of you know. And uh, so along about March, we moved in in October. I, I was just, you know, climbing the walls. It was, you know, too much of the winter. So I decided one Sunday afternoon to take a ride. And I didn't know, but as I drove around the local streets in the two minutes, because I have a minute 57. <laughs> so, okay, anyway. Have to get to the point. And I came around the corner, and there was Spring Hill, the place we'd been to at our honeymoon, you know, um, 10 years before. And I had no idea where it was. And there we moved in about a mile from Spring Hill in Maine, you know, 200, 300 miles from Connecticut. And um, that was part of the story. And the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is uh, this past couple of months, we'd been living in South Berwick for 16 years and uh, actually before that for a while, like I said, on Emory's Bridge Road. And we uh, needed to move for various reasons. And we looked and we looked, and a couple things happened. And finally, we got uh, a surprise email from a lady who owned a little cottage in Elliott. And we looked at it, and it was perfect. And people who know me, you know, Leona, I know that that cottage was about 100 yards or less from the Greenacre by High School entrance where we had been on our honeymoon, you know, uh, 25-something years before. So that was the full circle I was going to talk about and involved a lot of love, a lot of friendship. Uh, I was going to bring parents into the whole deal. and uh, But this is the basic of the story, and Leona said, that's enough. So... All right. Leona's going to sing, which is the real treat. And uh, she says she wrote this song about me, but I don't know. Maybe the, you never know. But it's a great song. Thank you. I did write this song for Larry. Okay. 
But I've written a lot of different songs, and some of them are kind of love songs about other people, and some are just kind of general love songs. So I think he's, he's never quite sure <laughs> what I'm doing or what I'm singing about. I've, um, Larry and I have sung a lot together and, and still do whenever we can. But I also perform with a group called Salt River. And uh, we've been together for 16 years, and Larry's been very, very supportive of me being in another group. So this is really about unconditional love, which is what marriage is about. 35 years they've been married, almost 36, right? 36. And, uh, You're the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not famous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not famous musicians or anything, but music has always been an important part of our life, and our, our faith has been an important part of our lives, and our children. who are, We have three children, all grown up. Our youngest is graduating college this year, and uh, we have three grand girls. I call them my grand girls, and they're, they're just beautiful. It's amazing seeing your kids grow up and... And have kids of their own, it actually happens. <laughs> when you're in the middle of when they're little, you think it's never going to happen, but it does. So I'll just share with you a little bit, a few of the words of this song called The Sweetest Way. I love you even when you're sleeping. I love you when you're half awake. And when you kiss me in the morning, baby, you know that's all it takes to make my music in the morning, my magic in the day. I really need your loving to take me all the way. And that's the sweetest way to go. Was it Jack, Jackie Gleason that was known for that phrase? The sweet, what is it? Sweetest. Away we go. Not the sweetest way. Away we go. <laughs> Away we go. <laughs>
Next up, we've got Justin Bailey, who learned to talk in New Hampshire. I know this because his bio said that he moved to New Hampshire from Massachusetts before he could talk. (laughs) Justin volunteers here at Portsmouth Community Radio and at Old Time Radio in Seabrook, and when he's not searching for a real job, he works at a place in Lee called Haunted Overload, (laughs) which according to its website gives its patrons the ultimate Halloween experience. Justin was inspired last month by... Amy Antonucci's insect-related story right here at True Tales Radio. He will now tell us his own ultimate scary experience in his story, Why Did It Have to Be Bees? Uh, How do you do, everyone? Uh, This is the uh, first time I've done something like this, so excuse me reading from a script. I didn't want to trail off as I wanted to do, and I need to be certain I don't say anything that would give our airway bosses over at the FCC an aneurysm. (laughs) Now, Now, being the indoorsy type, I generally don't have many nature stories or indeed many stories about hope or new beginnings. I'd rather, I'm rather set in my ways, and I don't begin anew that often. However, I do have a story that fits this month's theme, kind of, and it even links to thematically to the one of the stories from last week. Namely, it was a time that I was attacked by bees. <laughs> However, in order to give this story the kind of context it needs, I need to go to a place where all good bee stories begin, the dentist. I, be- I believe it was somewhere in 2011 or 12, I was getting some kind of dental work or treatment or something. The doc was explaining what he was going to be doing to me. More or less, it amounted to him uh, needing to inject me with some uh, localized anesthetic mixed with epinephrine. So he could do this stuff and I could get out of his admittedly comfy chair. So I leaned back in the chair and he took out this big old gray syringe and injected the concoction into my gum. Waited a few seconds, then he prepared his dental device and began to do his thing when... I don't really remember what happened for the next few minutes, but eyewitness reports said it something along the lines of caged bear. (laughs) Apparently, apparently I started panicking, and when I came to, I was curled up in a chair, darting my eyes around the room. At first, I didn't want to let the dentist give the treatment another whirl, but I decided I didn't feel like giving, like having someone drive me back to Newburyport just so we could give this a round two. So it was better to try it was better to just try again. This time around, the doctor decided not to add the epinephrine to whatever the local anesthetic he used, and lo and behold, the procedure went fine, as well as anything, well, as well as anything to do with the dentists can go. Seeing as I was only affected after I was given the epinephrine, the dentist and I agreed that I was either allergic to epinephrine, that I was agreed to, and we agreed that if we were going to do any future work done to my mouth, it would be done without epinephrine from then on. Fast forward to August of last year, and I'm doing what I typically, oh, what I'm typically always doing around that time of year. I'm doing some volunteer work for the always fantastic Haunted Overload. For the uninitiated, Haunted Overload is an amazing haunt in Lee, just off Route 4, and I donate, and I donate the most, the majority of my summer vacations of my high school career to helping build and maintain the haunt. The cool thing about it, though, is that every year we give 10% of our gross proceeds to the Cochico Valley Humane Society, with last year we being able to give them $15,000. So that shameless product placement out of the way. (laughs) And uh, on this particular afternoon, it was just Eric Lowther, the Haunted Overloads owner and operator, renowned for his ape-like ability to ignore to ignore how high he is and climb any standing structure, and Wallace Valley, the closest thing we have to a building supervisor. 
they were continuing construction of this new three stories this new three-story facade they had taken most of the entire time to complete we begin construction whenever the snow melts to opening day and because and because not one of the three of us really trusted my sense of balance or ability to handle power tools they asked me to move uh, this pile of reapers out to where they were keeping them stored so we can be able to dress them up and make them look pretty enough for showtime for at this moment they are mounted to warden torsos on two by fours held together by nails chicken wire black cloth and dreams the thing that you get used to when working with the hun is handling awkwardly balanced objects because while the majority of the stuff there isn't necessarily heavy, it's just the weight is distrib uh, distributed strangely, and it's difficult to find a decent way to pick anything up. No different were the Reapers. There were about seven of them all piled together, because what else are we going to be doing with them? And while we were probably about 40 pounds, they all stuck together and lopsided, and they getting them where they needed to go without breaking them quite an affair. After a bit of time, I'd whittled them down to three or so, and when I got hold of the next one and pulled, it just didn't budge. It didn't feel much heavier, so I thought it was just snagged or something, but I couldn't see on what, so I just pulled more, and it gave a little bit. So gratified, I gave a heavy pull, and then I heard a ripping noise, and then a buzzing sound. Oh, dears. Turns out... Some kind of beehive had formed around the reaper, or at least that was what I had the chance to figure out when I was suddenly swarmed. I began to do what everyone did do, flail and run. Because of them, because more than anything else, I knew one thing. I had never been stung before, as far as I knew, and my mind flashed back to the dentist thing. Ignoring the fact that I didn't have an EpiPen, I had no idea what it would even do to me if I had one. Apparently, uh, either way, apparently splinting through the haunt was enough to make the bees tired enough to stop following me, but that was just when my problems began. The pay was something I wasn't really prepared for. I was stung in the face three times, and even more times than other parts of my body, and it hurt basically to do anything. It hurt to move, it hurt not to move, and it was making me kind of zone out from the pain. Eric and Wally saw me, and I, and said I should probably go try to find a hospital or, or maybe some kind of drugstore to find the form of uh, sting cream. Agreeing, I stumbled to my car and began to drive off when another thought came to me. I haven't the slightest idea where a hospital is. The closest one is in Rochester, which I don't know how to find in the first place, and the other one I did know to find was in Exeter. And so I defaulted to going to the drugstore, which I knew was in the traffic circle of Lee, which is nearby. After setting some form of speed record, I barged into the Walgreens and tried my best in my mind-numbing pain to communicate my need for sting cream, which the teller person informed me they had none of, but they could look. Not being in the mood for that kind of patience, I stumbled outside and saw the glorious sign of walk-in urgent care. My mind decided that those were the nerds I, those were the words I needed, so I scooted off to the building and went in there. Now, I may not have a grasp of the English language wielded by a learned professor or an English major, but I do know when, but I do know when I think of the, when I think of urgent care, it doesn't mean wait ten minutes in the absolutely empty lobby while they're dealing with mild toxin. <laughs> However, once they got me into their care, the doctors was a nice woman, and they stuffed me with a few Benadryl. The swelling went down, and the pain was, went to a more tolerable level. I got Glenn, my stepdad, to come pick me up, and overall it turned out better than I thought it was going to. After the incident, I got 
an appointment with an immunologist and I learned what happened and I learned what happened at the dentist was more likely the epi triggered some kind of flight or flight reaction in my brain, especially with the uncomfortable nature of dentist and his fingers on my mouth and decided it was biologic and said it was biologically impossible for someone to be allergic to epinephrine street name adrenaline. Other than that, <laughs> other, other than we, uh, other than that, we got some testing there, such as the skin prick test, where they injected me a roll of about 35 irritants into me, and the intradermal test, which was like spring, which was like the skin prick test, only there were 25, only there was about 25, they did it in my arms instead of my back, and it was basically the worst part of giving blood 25 times, because they have to do each individual needle. Click, click, click. Okay, it's, uh, mm. I have a little bit of a story about involving the aftermath of the immunology business, but I think I've wasted enough of your time. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Tony Lee is next up. Tony submitted the shortest bio of anyone. Elementary school teacher born in Peterborough, New Hampshire, living in York, Maine. Okay, so I'm going to fill you in... <laughs> Uh, a few blanks there that he uh, <laughs> things left out. Tony's been a local Seacoast per personality for as long as I've been one. <laughs> 30, 35 years. He's acted with generic theater, been a director, and he now works theater into his curriculum at as a teacher, correct? He writes and tells stories and reads poetry very well. Tony's also a, a sailor. He does lots of stuff. And now he is going to recount a springtime youthful indiscretion behind the wheel of an old sob titled Driving Lesson. Um, thanks a lot. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, this story called uh, Driving Lesson um, came to mind on the theme of uh, springtime. It happened in the spring. But um, it's also, you know, a, a lot of people remember their first driving lesson. I don't know. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. So um, this, um, this, this happened, um, as I say, in the spring. I'm not sure. It was maybe around this time of year. But all the springy stuff was, was in the air. The birds are returning. The peepers peeping and the... The verve in your, you know how it is. That's, that's the way we're feeling now. And, um, it, it's also, you know, it's a time to try new things and be courageous. And, um, but it's also a time in my experience to do some pretty dumb stuff. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever done any dumb stuff uh, in the oh. spring, in the spring, 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 that, um, that, you know, it's not to sound morbid, but I'm, you know, whenever I see, um, like a dead squirrel by the road. I think of that poor little sucker who thought he could make it and, uh, and it was full of maybe too much confidence. And, uh, and, uh, my story isn't like that, but it's, <laughs> <clears throat> but I think you could call it a cautionary tale. Um, the, um, uh, you know, again, just to say it again, the, you know, the, the romance, the, you know, the wonderful sense of life, um, can also um, be a time of great distraction. And, and um, so that's really what this story is about, I think, though we'll see how it goes. Um, it begins with my sister Kathy, K-A-T-H-E, uh, a little older. She was um, 
she now lives in California. She's a beautiful, lovely, lovely woman. And at age 18, she was a princess. She was, well, to me, in my eyes, she was, she was absolutely gorgeous. She had long brown hair, brown eyes, and she'd play her guitar outside and she would, she had an amazing effect on young men. And it was, it was quite, quite obvious that, um, um, she was, she was a babe and, uh, she, um, brushed by me and her hair not quite ready and leaving a trail of perfume and said, Tony, can you get the car? And to get the car in my house was, was a, just a nice thing that usually my dad would do it for my mom, you know, she, who was also quite elegant and had a, had an air about her and he'd, so I'd seen it done. You you um you go out uh to the garage and you you go past um there's a walkway and then there was a large elm tree that had been resisting the Dutch elm beetles for many years and um quite a stalwart uh, example of the of the tree. And then walk a little the the, the garage was about a hundred feet away, um and there was a uh, basketball hoop, and so so I, I yeah I could do it so and and I thought you know again maybe it's the, the spring the feeling of spring that you know I could be the guy who gets the car you know that that would be such a such a cool uh, advancement in my um, my position in the family so <laughs> so and so you know in a sort of a gallant. Um, Mood. I I headed out there. I, I got the key. It was on the counter. Get head out there, um, and um, again past the tree. Uh, that'll become important. The uh, <laughs> the um, the basketball hoop and um, looked at this car. And it was my dad's car. Um, um, some of you may know what a Saab 96 is. It's a, it's an old car that doesn't refer to the year. It's, uh, it's early 60s. Um, and the first Saabs that came, um, to the country were, um, really funny looking. They were kind of teardrop shaped. And from the front, they had these bug eyes of the, and, and the back that I was looking at really looked like the front of a plane and the, and the Saabs. It was originally a plane manufacturer, but the back of this car, which is powder blue, was, you know, tapered like the front of a plane. Beautiful thing. And my my dad loved this car. It was um, he um, he admired a lot of things about it. Um, it's it was very lightly built, so it was very good on gas, and um, he he was kind of a cheapskate, so he appreciated that. And he liked quirky things. So this this was quite a quirky car. It. <clears throat> Had um, again, you know, very light. So when when you got in, it didn't make the sound of an American car. You know, we, we, you know, it was clink. You know, we shut the door, and um, it had some other interesting features. The it's pretty common now, but I haven't, I hadn't never seen it before. The back seat would fold down, and it was really just a piece of plywood um, painted blue, and extended the trunk area to about five feet of. Uh, so, so it's about five feet. This will also be important. Five feet from the from the bumper to the driver's seat, where I was. I eventually did I get in the car yet? I, I got in the car, and uh, and 
<laughs> trying to s- and put the key in. I know how to do it. And uh, in sitting up close to the um, to the wheel, I was able to see all there were three pedals could, could reach them, and I um, turned the key. And um, did I mention? Uh, that I was seven? No. <laughs> I should have. I should have said that first. Should have said that first. I, my, my sister. My sister was um, eighteen and was eleven when I was born, and was always very nice to me. Um, and just must have just have been an absence of thought to ask me to get the car. Um, but. Um, you know, I, and in her defense, I mean, this sounds like she wasn't really very responsible. She was distracted. This was a really, I'm sure this was some kind of really important social thing. And she was going to make quite a splash. And of course she'd want the car got out for you. And, and I, and as, even at, at seven, I act, you know, I acted like a little, a little man. You know, I was, I was quite a bit younger. So I was always, um, older in my own eyes than I really was. So, where was I? I turned the key. And, <clears throat> Turn the key, and um, um, I'd never done this before. And you know, I had—I'm um, sure—I uh, had sat in cars and felt, watched, and, and felt the thing. And um, you know, I can remember sitting in a car and going, you know, making the noises, you know, well. I could go on, but they, they, um, this car didn't sound like that. It's, it had a two cycle engine and you would add oil when you gassed up. And so it, it, um, had a very different sound, very high whiny sound, almost like a dirt bike kind of sound, but a little more muffled. And, um, so I got the thing going, um, and, um, I, uh, found the, uh, reverse gear. It was a very, you know, everything's really light. It, the, the gear shift, Really looked like a windshield wiper control. You know, very, everything's very small and uh, lightly built. So, got it in in reverse. I think, I think there were four, uh, three, four. You know, the, the term three on the tree" was a uh, old term for for uh, four. One reverse gear, and um, the uh, got it in the reverse and um, started the you know got and, and dumped the clutch and the thing stopped. So. Um, I could have s- reconsidered the whole thing at that point. I, I, I know, but but instead, <laughs> the spirit of spring and the gallantry was all wrapped up. And though I, so I was sure the next time I would really, you know, I wasn't going to let it stall again. So revving it really pretty good and letting out the clutch a little slower, I guess. Ended up with me going back at a tremendous pace. I was so surprised at how fast um, the thing was going. And then the the garage had a little bit of a lip, so so when you got came out of the garage, that picked up the speed. Oh, you know, other thing I didn't mention that's really cool about this car. Um, you know, other people want to hear like, what did my sister wear and all these kind of things. I'm really interested in the car. This thing had a a um, a little lever you could turn underneath the dash that would would engage freewheeling, and what it meant was it helped you coast and maybe save gas, but it it automatically just like it was like pushing in the clutch when you stopped accelerating. So um, if you were going, you know, you know in, in most standard cars, you let off the gas and the the uh, engine creates quite a bit of braking. Uh, 
initiative. And so, um, not this car. And again, that'll be important. Um, so <laughs> I'm going back, I'm going back, and I've suddenly, you know, of course, overwhelming mm-hmm. sense of caution. I say, whoa, I got to slow down. Um, and I start stabbing with my right foot, hoping to hit the brake. Of course, I'd miss the brake. I hit the gas. And, the, and that whining was, was louder. And so I'm picking up speed, and I notice um, the, uh, the basketball hoop goes zooming by. <laughs> and I know that, that that elm tree is coming coming at me fast and so i and and when i take off a foot off the gas the thing doesn't slow down it's it's good it coasts marvelously and i (laughs) take another big stab at the brake miss it again it goes faster the the pitch is higher and i was going a really good clip when uh i hit the tree and it it the tree was driven through the um the pretty flimsy bumper through the rather small trunk through the back seat including the rear window and that whole that whole nice um airplane face it had in the back all the way back so that it the the car really hugged the tree and when they they tried to remove when when the they tried to remove of course a total loss <laughs> Why is total loss so funny? But the tree, the the car was hugging that tree. It was wrapped around the tree so that the tow truck really had a lot of trouble removing it. Scarred up the tree. The tree didn't last much longer either. But but um, that's really that's the story. Um, I tell you what it it says to me is that. This is a time of great opportunity and excitement and romance and all, but you got to be careful. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Tony, you got to be careful. <laughs> Kathy Wolf is coming up next. Kathy is an excellent writer who lives in Kittery, Maine. Her bio was even shorter than Tony's and that she didn't send one. It's okay, Kathy. I don't know where Kathy works right now nor what she's working on, but I know she's doing some good writing because that's what Kathy does. Over the years, she's found grist for new material and renting out rooms in her home to various different tenants. <laughs> she's going to tell us about that in her story, Every Tenant is a New Story. Kathy? The poet walks on my head. Each firm heel-toe step is a word, usually an adjective. Each pause is a comma. There aren't many pauses. She walks straight lines, fast, bent slightly forward, never looking at her feet or over her shoulder back and forth on the fake parquet floor of the apartment. She's what Anne Carroll would have called heavy-footed. So am I, or at least that's what Anne Carroll said when I had my bedroom upstairs and I walked on her head. (laughs) Some are, some aren't, she declared once, arching her eyebrow and making the wine jiggle as she paddled her hands on the kitchen table to describe the sound of my bare, flat feet slapping across the floor. And you... 
It wasn't unkind. It was just a statement of fact. We laughed. That was before I found out about the credit cards. And it was the credit cards that led me to turn the upstairs into an apartment in my house. And Carol painted it, spending exactly the number of hours at the task that were needed to earn enough money to pay her rent for the month before she moved out, without even thanking me for not pressing charges uh, and for letting her stay a couple of extra months. She maintained until the end that she did not know how my discarded credit cards ended up in her purse and the bills were being sent to a post office box five towns away. Anne Carroll was not heavy-footed. She was one of those gliders capable of slipping sideways into a room. No entrance, just there. She was just as capable, though, as being the center of attention, holding people close to her with her Irish storytelling and her fast wit and her bursting laugh. She made Martha Stewart perfect salads and served them before the entrees at her dinner, dinner parties. She always cleaned up. Anne Carroll slid into the rented room as if it were an unquestionable, natural succession. After all, she was Hasim's girlfriend, and he was the young Turkish welder that I had rented the room to. But he had decided to move out because I had told him he couldn't smoke in the room or in the house, even though it was getting cold outside. At least that's what he said. I think it had more to do with the fact he was addicted to online gambling and the rent was too much of a cost for him. Anne Carroll soon parted company with Hasim, but not until she'd arranged to take over his room in my house. The winter she lived in the room under my feet. I would come back from Boston, and she and Ross, who was perpetually at the house fixing something, a caved-in ceiling or a stuffed-up sewer or a broken pipe, uh, they, two of them would be in the kitchen talking and cooking and drinking, and the three of us would sit at a little table and light a candle and maybe eat something and share some wine, and Ross would talk of crossing the Sahara twice. He always said, well, I went over it, I had to go back. And he'd talk about the tough guys of Suncook, New Hampshire, <laughs> including his own grandfather, who was a state legislator, a drunk, a powerful hitter of baseballs, they called him Babe, and uh, good friends with the uh, Montreal's chief of police. He, that friendship went back to the 1920s when Ross's grandfather was um, making midnight forays across the border back and forth. It was just a little international uh, <clears throat> business during Prohibition and bolstered his factory wages. Anne Carroll would talk about growing up rich in a Boston suburb with a piano-playing father that she adored, a mother she hated a sister who hated her and a pony. And sometimes I would share a story from my commuter van about who liked who or who didn't or whatever, or something about bean buns in Chinatown or the glazed eyes and black clothes of everybody in downtown Boston except the homeless and some of the Emerson College students. We'd laugh, we'd tell jokes, we'd exclaim how good Ross is peace peach sauce was on ginger ice cream. It was really quite cozy. Until I learned about the credit cards, it was only about $20,000, but it was a big hassle to sort out. Anyway, there were others who rented the space in my house before and after Anne Carroll and before the poet. Can I even remember them now? I, they blur in my memory the same way a white house 
the same, <clears throat> they blur in my memory the same way a white house in bright sun shimmers but loses detail, especially around the edges. You know, they blur like long gone lovers blur and for that much, so much else in life. After my husband Ken left, and for all practical purposes our teenage son with him, I started renting the room and later the apartment to help meet expenses. Another reason probably involved the fact that with another person in the house I was less likely to give in to the kind of grief that would leave you with a stuffed-up nose, red eyes, and annoying case of hiccups. And the only really bad tenant I've ever had was the first one. She was an opera singer. She kept her hyper-yelling Springer Spaniel in a carrying cage about 18 out of 24 hours. And she had the kind of attitude issues that make a smile and a civil good morning as rare as cleaning the bathtub. And when she said she was moving out, I only regretted I hadn't said it first. Her, her name, it's gone. I want to say Sophie, but I think that was the dog's name. <laughs> <laughs> there was Sharon who left, beh left behind a Kansas farm to follow her lover to New England, and she moved into the room while they were, um, when she was brand new in the area. She also took time to rebuild the bulkhead steps that the Kittery firemen had destroyed one icy January night when the furnace went kaflooey and filled the house with smoke. But I figured it out right before the firemen came, and I threw myself across the front door and wouldn't let them in with their axes and pointed them down to the, down to the cellar. Anyway, Sharon was one of those beautifully balanced people who glows. And for the first time since I'd lived there, the house felt warm and calm. But soon, she and her lover bought a home where Sharon eventually created a, a successful rain harvesting business. A young woman with multiple sclerosis, just the first stages, and lovely flowered hats and snow-white looks, also lived in the room. She had two dogs, Yuri and Sebastian, for whom I had a fence built around the backyard. It took three months for the young man I hired to build the fence, and I made the mistake of paying him in advance. In the last month, he explained to me that it really was hard to try and kick drugs all by yourself. The young woman's devoted lover, a lanky, red-headed mountain climber she worked with in a factory at, in North Berwick, was in the house most nights. And they, they moved out a year later because they said they really wanted, wanted to make more noisy lovemaking. And with Ta my son Tyler around, sometimes they didn't think they should do that. So, Then, of course, there was Suzette, who arrived from California with a car full of houseplants and an industry-grade juicer that she'd been unable to get rid of to sell at her get-rid-of-it-all yard sale. She came east to try to get to know her teenage son, who lived with his dad, had a small-town life hemmed in by computer games and fast cars. Tall and elegant, Suzette had joined the Air Force after being raised by hippie parents in a desert shack without indoor plumbing or electricity. She had a potted tree in the room, and she was very lonely. But she was also a person of faith. And when I got seriously ill, she, uh, even though she'd already decided to move out and find a place that was calmer, she stayed, saying it was what she was supposed to do. And she made, with her juicer, so much carrot and beet juice for me that I turned rosy orange. I think it was Gina and her boyfriend, both fresh from fire-walking hedonistic life in Maui, who were the first tenants in the apartment that Ross, Ross renovated upstairs after the credit card fiasco. 
She gardened, he baked. Neither made enough to live in the tiny apartment alone. And soon Gina tired of the boyfriend and they both moved out. They had to. Gina on to teaching belly dancing and the boyfriend back to Maui or maybe Wisconsin. There was another couple, the young Coast Guard officer away months at a time, intercepting drugs in Haitians at sea. He kept the first and returned the second. <laughs> he set up a tank of tropical fish to keep his girlfriend company in his absence, and she was attending culinary school and putting icing on cakes at Hannaford, and she decided she needed more company than flashing fish, and she wrote him a Dear John letter that bewildered him. The poet is leaving. I had to raise the rent because of heating costs. She said it was too much. I lowered the increase. She decided to leave anyway. All this was communicated by email, even though we were only a ceiling <laughs> apart. I'll miss her heavy-footed striding. It always reassured me to know that someone had a sense of direction, at least across a room. <laughs> I'll miss fantasizing how she worked on her poems, sitting at the kitchen table watching the snow, teasing a metaphor out of the ancient apple tree in the backyard, finding a rhythm for a line, a phrase, a thought, as she walked, heavy-footed, from kitchen to living room to bathroom, back to the kitchen. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci, and here is our MC, Pat Spaulding. Christine Kelly is up next. She's the president of Balanced Business Performance, a consulting firm in Portsmouth that helps small to medium companies grow. Christine is also a speaker and a storyteller who lives on the seacoast with her dog, Lucy, and cat, Lizzie. She will tell us how her dog, Abenaki, came to her rescue one sunny afternoon in Vermont in her story, A Girl's Best Friend. So I first met Abenaki at a friend's house. He was the smallest of a litter of 13, and he toddled over, on, over to me on his little legs, looked up at me as if to say, I choose you. And then immediately he just curled up right in his spot, right in my heart. And Abenaki grew to be very strong and handsome and smart and funny. <laughs> okay. so, um, so he would always be right there, always with me. In fact, he would make sure he was because he'd often sleep on my stuff so I couldn't go anywhere without him or jump in the car if the window was open. <laughs> So a few years later, my then-husband and I moved up to the Northeast Kingdom in Vermont. And it, it was beautiful. All I could see from my window was rolling hills in a little forest and a little stream. The only traffic I saw was the cows walking back and forth each day, twice a day, to get milked. And in fact, um, up there, it's often like here, where people don't come up to your front door. They come around to your dooryard. And to get there in this house, you had to go in the driveway, around the hay shed, up to the back door. And you couldn't tell from the street whether there was anyone there or not. So this day was a beautiful summer day. I worked nights at that time, and I was coming up on four days off. And if you've ever worked nights, one of the best ways to get on a daylight schedule is to just stay up. 
So I was out back in the dooryard washing the car. All of a sudden, I see come around the hay barn this little white Camaro with pretty interior. And the car pulls up, and there's a guy that I don't know. So I say, hi, can I help you? And he said, well, you know, I'm looking for the so-and-sos. So I said, well, you know, I really don't know them, but if you go up to the farm up the road, he knows everyone. He can help you up there. And so he kind of nods his head, and then he says, well, isn't there anyone here you can ask? So in the back of my head, this little bell is going ding, 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 and I said, well, you know, my husband's here, but he worked last night, so he's sleeping. I'm not going to wake him up, so why don't you take a ride up to the farm down the road? They know everybody. So then he nods a little bit, and then he says, I don't think there's anyone here. And now the bells are getting louder, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So what I did was say, no, no, my husband is upstairs, but I think you should go, and I think you should go up the road to the farm. They know everybody. So he sits there and nods his head. And he said, I don't think there's anyone here. So now the bells are clanging like a congregation of church bells. And there's sirens and lights. I'm like, oh my God. And then he started to open the door. So my buddy, Abenaki, who was always right there, always with me, he puts his paws up on the window with every ounce of his 65 pounds. He leans his head in the car, bares his teeth, and goes, Grr! And I said, I think he wants you to go. <laughs> and God bless that dog. I love him for this. He dragged his claws all the way down the side <laughs> of that pretty white Camaro. So finally, the guy goes off. Now, I was pretty wired. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm in the house now, and I'm still wired, still no sleep, and I hear a car coming up the drive. But now, I'm mad. So I grab the shotgun, thinking that pretty white Camaro is going to have scratch marks and buckshot. So I go to the door, fling it open, and I bellow. I said, go. And I looked up, just in time to see two little girls running up the driveway <laughs> to get in their mother's car. Apparently, they were selling magazine subscriptions. So <laughs> I made good to the mother, and I bought some magazines. I never did see that little white Camaro again. But Abenaki lived to the age of 17, and he was always right there, always with me. And at 17, his eyes were failing, and his hips had gone. So when it was time to gently let him go, I was right there with him, right by his side. And sure enough, as he drifted off, I just knew that no matter how much, how many how much time had passed, he would always be right there, curled up right in my heart. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. Now I'm going to introduce Pat Spaulding from Ryan, New Hampshire, who you've been hearing on and off tonight. She's a writer and performer who enjoys her time as MC at True Tales Radio. Pat has been telling tales through puppetry and stand-up storytelling for decades, actually since the seventh grade when she claims this whole storytelling thing began. 
Assigned to do an oral presentation in front of the class about what happened over her summer vacation, she came up with this. I usually write stories ahead of time and read them, but this is just a, a brief little description of a memory that I have in the seventh grade where this storytelling thing all began. My goodness, they never asked me to get closer to the mic. Yeah, I'm too, I'm too loud usually. So. The assignment was an oral presentation about what happened on your summer vacation, kind of typical. And we were campers. My family was campers. And um, so we'd gone to, uh, on a camping trip, Moosehead Lake, and done the usual things with a tent and cooking outside and all, all that good stuff. And, you know, spent some time in the kind of crappy little porta-potties or restrooms or whatever they have to clean yourself up so and um, do what you need to do. So one evening after dinner, uh, my mother and I, before bed, we figured that we'd just go off to the field to pee. And it occurred to me to tell about this event at um, my summer presentation, I, I mean about the summer vacation because the story had all the components that a seventh grade would like. Um, there was adventure, there was fear, and there was pulling down your pants. <laughs> <laughs> so Ma and I went in the tall grass. Both of us found a little spot to squat. And we were just kind of contemplating there, you know, kind of pleasant. Glad we hadn't had to use that porty, pot, pot well, whatever. The, the the smelly bathrooms at campground. And um, as I was looking through the grass, I heard something rustle. And um, wasn't very far away. Ma looked in the same direction. And it was probably five feet away. We saw something move, the grass moved. And as we continued to watch, we saw something brown kind of rise above the grass. And then it appeared to be big antlers that came up, and then a brown head, and then big eyes, a long nose, and then a back. And we're, we're squatting there going, <laughs> and this huge moose, it, it rose up out of the grass and was looking our way because it had been asleep and we had apparently disturbed it. It was pretty scary. So I... um quickly you know, tried to get up out of the grass and run. And my mother did too, but we, we were in a rather compromised position because our pants were down on our knees. And so we're running as fast as we could back to the tent and hoping that the moose wasn't following after us. And the moose, when we got back to the tent, we saw it galloping away much more gracefully <laughs> than was our exit toward the tent. It was probably just as, or possibly more, frightened of us than we were of it. And that's, um, when I told that story to the seventh grade, I got some pretty good laughs. Um, <laughs> I called the story, Ma, Moose, because when we saw those big antlers and those big eyes and that big head facing us, for that one frozen moment, that's all I could say before our ungraceful Exit. <laughs> <laughs>